Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 12th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. As usual, let's take a look at the weather to begin. Today, we have a patchy, wintry mix. And it'll be windy, a northwesterly wind at 20 to 30 miles per hour plus, with a high of 30 and a low of 17. Tomorrow, partly sunny, a northwesterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour, a high of 29 and a low again of 17. Then on Saturday, partly sunny, a southerly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour. The high will be 39 and the low will be 29. Then on Sunday, mostly cloudy, with a northwesterly wind at 15 to 25 miles per hour, a high of 44 and a low of 37. Our first story on the front page of the Gazette today is written by Aaron Jordan. It says, Iowa sues Marengo Company. The Iowa Attorney General's office is suing C60 and its owner to force action on an emergency order to clean up a Marengo explosion site. Attorney General Brenna Bird's office said in a prepared statement Wednesday that the suit seeks to prevent imminent threat to public health and the environment arising from a devastating explosion and fire at the C-60 facility on December 8, 2022. The lawsuit was filed in Iowa County. It asks a judge to grant a temporary and permanent injunction to force C-60 and owner Howard Brand III to comply with the December 15th emergency order from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, identify all chemicals at the site, and allow the DNR access to the facility. C-60 describes itself as a recycler of used asphalt shingles, with Brand attempting to use a proprietary solvent to dissolve the shingles into component parts of oil, sand, and fiberglass. The Marengo plant opened in 2020 and had about 30 employees. It was in a pilot phase when liquid solvent in a tank exploded December 8th and started a fire. Between 10 and 15 people were treated for injuries at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics, and neighbors living near the facility were briefly evacuated. EcoSource is a Des Moines-based firm. It started cleanup at the site December 14th using vacuum trucks to gather 31,000 gallons of petroleum products and water from the parking lot and loading bay and stored in two large steel tanks. It showed a drainage ditch near the plant had diesel levels of 28,000 milligrams per liter, more than 12 times higher than the state standard for stormwater of 2,200 milligrams per liter. Benzene and waste oil also exceeded state standards. EcoSource completed an environmental site assessment plan for C60 and estimated it could clean up the site by March, but the DNR's emergency order said the job needed to be done in January. The lawsuit states, DNR is not aware of any activities by representatives or agents of C60 at the facility since December 16, 2022, directed at analyzing, securing, or removing solid waste, contaminated water, or contaminated soil from the facility property. It went on to say, 
due to a clear and immediate threat in the environment and public health were caused by the explosion and fire at the facility, combined with the inaction and inadequate actions of C-60 in response to the DNR's emergency order on December 13, 2022. DNR Director Kayla Lyon requested that the Iowa Attorney General take all legal action necessary to ensure compliance with the emergency order and Iowa law. Also on the front page is a story written by Brittany Miller of the Gazette, Record Bird Flu Outbreaks Add to Surge in Prices. Dateline Cedar Rapids. The doors of Breakfast Barn and Lunch House, a family-owned restaurant that launched last year in northeast Cedar Rapids, open as early as 6.30 for early risers in search of a morning bite. Lately, the establishment has had to make some tweaks. Staff hours have been reduced. Military discounts are temporarily on hold. Cloth napkins will soon transition to the cheapest paper napkins, and condiments usually provided for free now come at a small price. The main culprit? Skyrocketing egg prices, coupled with inflation and rising costs of produce. General Manager Gretchen Edson said, It affects us a bit. Any little margin we have on profit, the egg prices are hurting it. Right now, we're just trying to find other areas to minimize our costs so we can make up losses from the hike of the cost of eggs. Egg prices fluctuated throughout 2022, but they reached record-breaking highs at the end of December when wholesale prices surpassed 3 or rather $5.30 per dozen of large eggs in the Midwest and reached $7.50 in California, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Retail prices reflected similar increases, but at higher price points. What caused these record-breaking egg prices? Experts largely point to last year's record-breaking outbreaks of deadly bird flu, which wiped out more than 52 million birds across the country as flocks were culled to keep the virus from spreading. No one was hit harder by the bird flu than Iowa, the top egg-producing state in the nation. And now, the egg industry is desperately trying to recover, sending rippling impacts to consumers' grocery store receipts and restaurant bills. Iowa State University professor and agriculture economist Chad Hart said, Iowa has seen the largest impacts in terms of the number of birds, and that definitely means a big impact in terms of the number of eggs available within the nationwide egg market. Highly pathogenic avian influenza, which refers to highly infectious and deadly strains of bird flu, swept the United States last spring when wild birds migrated north and spread the virus. Infections then had a boomerang during the fall migrations back south. Hart said, noting that it can take two to three months for facilities to recover from an outbreak, that we were basically trying to rebuild our flocks from the spring outbreak, so sort of a double whammy. When commercial birds like chickens and turkeys contract bird flu, they almost always die. If an infection is detected, entire flocks can be killed to prevent further spread. Human infections are very rare and typically stem from direct contact with afflicted birds. There is little to no chance of infection from consuming eggs and cooked poultry. 
Roughly 16 million birds were culled in Iowa last year between the state's commercial and backyard chicken and turkey flocks. Two of these flocks contained more than 5 million egg-laying chickens each. And, of the 30 known outbreaks, seven occurred in December alone. The last bout of deadly bird flu in the United States occurred in 2015, costing Iowa's economy $1.2 billion, with more than 8,400 jobs lost, according to an Iowa Farm Bureau Federation report. It resulted in the deaths of more than 30 million hens in the state, nearly double the damage seen last year. But nationally, 7.4 million turkeys and 43 million chickens were killed during that 2015 outbreaks, falling short of the record-breaking losses seen this past year. Hart said the spring outbreak was similar to what we saw back in 2015, which would have been the last major outbreak here. Now, you throw on these additional issues in the fall, and this becomes the largest outbreak we've ever seen. After any bird flu detection, flocks are removed immediately. And for any impacted egg-laying chickens, that means the supply of eggs is gone too. As a result, egg prices take the hit. Their record-breaking 2022 high is just starting to decline. Hart said, we've likely seen, hopefully, a peak right now. Hopefully, we will start to bring these prices back down as we start to bring more and more birds back online, meaning more and more eggs entering the market stream. Company or consumer demand is starting to decline from holiday highs, but eggs are still a popular go-to option, especially for those seeking healthier diets in the new year. That's according to the latest USDA Eggs Markets Overview. Hart said, eggs begin and happen to be one of those basic commodities that everybody continues to buy almost regardless of where prices go, because it's such a critical ingredient to many of the food products we want to create at home. The turkey industry is also facing similar issues, although to a lesser extent, he said. Prices for chicken meat have stayed relatively steady. Prices of many main ingredients at the Eat Shop, which is a bakery in Solon, have gone up 20% recently, but as egg costs have skyrocketed beyond historical recognition, the bakery has especially felt the burn. It has resorted to buying egg whites and egg yolks separately and mixing them together, which is a solution that still is somehow cheaper than a carton of eggs. It freaks me out, said owner Cheryl Maloney, about the high egg prices. We use eggs in, you can imagine, basically everything that we make, so it's been really hard. Grocery store visitors may choose to skip pricey eggs as they pass by in the aisle, but food providers that use the commodity to create staple meals are even more impacted by rising costs. Hart said, customers may see higher menu prices as a result. He added, when we're going to those restaurants, typically there's some egg on that plate, so it will impact the cost there as we're looking forward. Maloney said her menu prices haven't increased yet, although she now thinks twice about introducing any new products with eggs in them. She said, I'm just crossing my fingers that prices are going to come down. One of the biggest unknowns will come in the spring. Will we see more bird flu outbreaks as wild birds migrations begin again? 
No one knows, but the egg industry and consumers are likely crossing their fingers for a less eventful year of infections. Limited to no infections could bring retail egg prices down to normal, around 90 cents to a dollar, taking into account inflation that could continue by early to midsummer. Hart said, If you look back, for example, at what we went through in 2015, the idea is it was about a six- to seven-month process for the industry to rebuild. I would expect a very similar sort of glide path as we're looking forward here. Brittany J. Miller is the energy and environment reporter for the Gazette and a core member with Report for America. Turning now to the Iowa Today page, we find a story written by Emily Anderson of the Gazette called Weapons-Related Crimes Decline in CR. Dayline, Cedar Rapids. Decreases in the number of violent crimes and weapons-related crimes reported in 2022 have Cedar Rapids police optimistic going into the new year. There were 88 weapons-related crimes in 2022, which is down from 116 in 2021 and 188 in 2020, according to the Cedar Rapids Police Department's annual crime statistics. Shots fired calls were down slightly from 123 in 2021 to 120 in 2022, with the numbers decreasing more toward the end of the year. Cedar Rapids Chief Wayne German said, That significant decline leads me to be optimistic and hopeful that we can carry that trend. Because of those levels, I am optimistic, along with the fact that our outreach and community-based program called GVI, which stands for Group Violence Intervention, is continuing to bear fruit. Group Violence Intervention brings police together with community members and social services providers to reach those who are most at risk for being involved in violence before violence occurs. German said that he still is concerned about the number of guns stolen from vehicles. Last year, 679 thefts were reported from vehicles, a 28% increase from those reported the year earlier. The 2022 thefts included 58 guns. German said he doesn't want to blame those who are victims of theft, but he wishes people wouldn't leave firearms in their vehicles. He said there's 58 guns now that are on the street that if the gun owner was more responsible in handling that gun, they wouldn't be out on the street. Violent crimes in general decreased slightly last year with 460 reports compared to 467 the year earlier. Violent crimes included aggravated assaults, robbery, forcible rape, murder, and manslaughter. Domestic abuse cases, which are recorded as aggravated assaults, declined from 132 in 2021 to 121 in 2022, but still are high compared to the previous four years when the totals were below 100. German said he believes more domestic abuse survivors are willing to report abuse to police because of the Lethality Assessment Program, which was introduced to the department in 2016. That trains officers to ask a series of questions of abuse survivors to determine their level of risk and make victims feel more comfortable. 
Property crimes, including various forms of theft and burglary, increased from 3,926 reports in 2021 to 4,254 last year. German says this jump may be related to inflation, with people unable to afford things they want, and the lifting of restrictions related to the COVID-19 pandemic. He said, we're no longer in the lockdown mode that we used to be, and during those times, the majority of people worked from home, so burglaries declined sharply during that time. Also on the Iowa Today page is a story written by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette, Trial Move Again Rejected in Deputy Shooting Case. Dateline Cedar Rapids. A Chicago man accused of firing 10 rounds at a Lynn County Sheriff's deputy while fleeing a convenience store robbery in Coggin asked a judge for a second time Wednesday to move his trial out of Lynn County, but the judge denied the motion. Peter Stifel is the lawyer for Stanley L. Donahue and argued at the hearing it would be difficult to find a fair and impartial jury in Lynn County because the deputy, named William Halverson, who was shot while responding to the robbery, had been portrayed in some news articles as a superhero. The Coggin mayor even called Halverson a superhero, he said. Stifel also cited articles where Halverson said people in the community had supported him and brought meals to his family after he got out of the hospital. Stifel added, those comments show the community was aware of the crime. Stifel also said several articles mentioned Donahue's charges without stating his presumption of innocence and detailed the allegations against him as if they were true. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks argued that most of the reports that the defense cited were social media posts or comments on news articles, and those don't show the reach of the stories. Who is writing the comments or where they live? The number of those comments are minor, he said, compared to Lynn County's population. Maybanks did allow it might be more of an issue if any Coggin people are in the jury pool because it's a smaller community and they might be familiar with Halverson. He didn't know how many news articles mention Halverson being a, quote, superhero, but said he thinks it may have been only two. Sixth Judicial District Judge Christopher Bruns denied the defense's motion, saying he had reviewed all the materials the defense submitted, but still thinks a fair and impartial jury can be seated if a large jury pool is called. Bruns, in December 2021, denied the first change of venue motion. On Wednesday, he cited another case that had a lot of publicity before trial, and finding only four or five potential jurors had heard of the case during jury selection. Bruns said most people don't follow the local news or the national news. In some cases, consumption of the news is way down. Bruns said he would allow the defense to renew its motion for a change of venue if it's found during jury selection that a number of people have heard about the case or have an opinion on it. Donahue is charged with attempted murder of a peace officer, two counts of first-degree robbery, two counts of false imprisonment, willful injury, attempt to elude, disarming a police officer, trafficking and stolen weapons, and possession of a firearm as a felon. Donahue is accused of robbing the Casey's General Store on Highway 13 in Coggin on June 22, 2021, forcing two clerks into a cooler and stealing cash, 
cigarette cartons, and personal belongings, according to a criminal complaint. He is accused of firing 10 rounds at Halverson when the deputy responded to the alarm. Halverson had been a deputy for seven years at the time. He was wearing a protective vest, but suffered two gunshot wounds in the hip and leg. Donahue was captured after a 14-hour search. If convicted on all charges, Donahue faces up to 112 years in prison, with a mandatory 65 years to serve before being eligible for parole. Donahue remains in jail under a $2.5 million bond. From the Iowa Today page, we have a story written by Isabella Zaluska of the Gazette. Shelter House Team Up to Launch Housing Program. Dateline, Iowa City. The Iowa City City Council has agreed to spend $1.1 million in pandemic relief funds on a program that aims to prevent homelessness. Mayor Bruce Teague said at a Tuesday council meeting that, I really believe housing is a human right, and we need this partnership with Shelter House to get us to a different level. And this will be just one avenue that will help combat this complex challenge that we have. The Housing Stability Pilot Program, which is proposed by Shelter House, aims to strengthen eviction prevention and diversion and improve housing retention. The program will receive American Rescue Plan Act funding for three years and serve people in Johnson and Washington counties. When the dollars run out, the project will need funding from other sources, according to a city memo. Iowa City received $18.3 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds and has approved $6.4 million in projects to date. The funds to Shelter House will be used to hire five full-time positions, one coordinated entry specialist, two housing uh, stability support specialists, and two eviction prevention and housing stabilization specialists. Since the start of the pandemic, Shelter House has prevented the eviction of 583 households, nearly 1,000 people, and dispersed $1.16 million in emergency rental assistance, according to the project proposal submitted by the nonprofit. Shelter House said in its proposal, quote, the potential for long-term impact here should not be understated. According to a city memo explaining the program, coordinated entry is the, quote, first point of contact for homeless and individuals and families. Shelter House will use $204,000 through fiscal 2026 to hire a coordinated entry specialist and also pay for a translation service. The specialist will answer phone calls and meet with people in person to determine what they need. The specialist will hold bi-weekly meetings with housing providers as well. Shelter House will spend over $394,000 through fiscal 2026 on housing stabilization. The two people working in this area will expand housing search and location services, arrange apartment viewings, and continue relationship building with landlords and property managers. The specialists also will support households through the lease process when eviction is imminent. Shelter House will restart an eight-course tenant education series called RentWise to inform clients about the rental process. A landlord risk mitigation fund will be established in Iowa City and be funded by the state's affordable housing fund. It will provide incentives to landlords to 
rent to households with limited income, poor rental or credit histories, or a criminal background. Tracy Heitschuh is the city's Neighborhood and Development Services Director. Tracy said the Landlord Risk Mitigation Fund has been in the city's plan since 2016 and will now become a reality. The city is budgeting $30,000 for the program, which will help cover any excessive damages, lost rent, or legal fees. Eligibility will initially be limited to landlords renting to households engaged in rapid rehousing, households using emergency housing vouchers, permanent supportive housing providers, and other nonprofits offering supported housing to low-income households. Additionally, two employees will focus on eviction prevention and housing stabilization. Shelter House will spend over $391,000 on this effort through fiscal 2026. The specialists will assist with applying for financial assistance, educating tenants and building relationships, educating landlords on eviction prevention, and using rapid rehousing funds as needed to relocate households when other avenues have been exhausted. Shelter House will work with Iowa Legal Aid to provide a clinic at the Johnson County Courthouse and hold quarterly expungement clinics. The budget for those efforts is $90,000 through fiscal 2026. Now to today's Insight page and the Gazette's editorial, which headlined, Costly Plan Would Harm Public Schools. The Gazette says, As expected, the centerpiece of Governor Kim Reynolds' condition of the state speech Tuesday was a call for state lawmakers to provide publicly funded scholarships for private school students. What wasn't expected is the sweeping scope of the governor's latest proposal. Reynolds would provide $7,000-plus in scholarships to families based on income levels during the first two years of her plan. That's equal to per-pupil state funding provided to public schools. In year one, the plan would cost an estimated $107 million. But in year three, every Iowa student would be eligible for a scholarship. The cost of such a broad scholarship plan is sure to be high. Transferring state dollars to private schools that would otherwise go to public schools attended by the vast majority of Iowa students. Reynolds claims Republicans' election victories produced a mandate for such action on what she calls school choice. But the governor didn't campaign on making every Iowa student eligible for scholarships. Last year, the governor proposed 10,000 scholarships at roughly $5,500 per student. That was the plan she ran on and now has dramatically expanded. Reynolds did unveil some plans to help public schools, including making state resources available to struggling school districts. As part of her scholarship plan, public schools would receive $1,200 for any student who opts to leave a public school district for a private school, and for any student who lives in the district and attends a private school. But those measures are unlikely to make up for dollars lost to scholarships, and the governor's budget plan provides just a 2.5% increase in state aid to public schools, which also, while also, building a $2 billion ending balance. Lawmakers must hedge their budgetary bets as tax cuts passed in recent years take effect, potentially eroding revenues. 
The governor's scholarship plan is too costly, would eventually provide scholarships to families who don't need them, and clearly would do harm to the state's public schools by redirecting scarce resources. That's especially true in rural districts where no private option is available and enrollments are already declining. It's a fundamental shift in education policy in a state that once prided itself on the quality of its public schools. The governor has failed to make the case for change. We'd put more stock in Reynolds' argument that she wants to improve Iowa's entire education system if she hadn't sold her scholarship plan on the campaign trail to attacking public schools. She repeatedly talked of pornographic books in school libraries, woke curriculum, and other scare tactics. She gave away the game. This is more about politics than education. There's speculation at the State House that majority Republicans hope to pass the governor's scholarship plan quickly. That would be wrong and reckless. Iowans deserve time to understand the implications of the legislation and weigh in with their concerns. And that's today's Gazette editorial. We have one community letter today, and it comes from Michael Fritz of Coralville, who says, The details given by Iowa Republican leaders on public school funding are dishonest. Jack Whitver, the Senate Majority Leader, is quoted in the Gazette as saying, No aspect of the state budget receives more new funding since 2017 than education. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley agrees, quote, We are spending more money on state aid for education than we ever have in our state. Both statements are true, but misleading. Schools are faced with at least 4% inflationary costs by just being in the business of transportation, school supplies, food supplies, insurance, employee expenses, etc., under Republican leadership, the state has offered a paltry 0.5 to 2.5% increase in funding for the past several years. True, it's more money than the year before, and they tout it as historic funding, but it does not meet the needs of public schools. Schools are left with budget cutting to cover basic expenses at the expense of school programming. Let's be honest in the assessment of finances. The Republican leadership makes us believe that they are doing everything financially possible to finance schools. Take another look at school choice, which are vouchers that will siphon millions from the public schools. Iowa already has a school choice. It's called open enrollment. And that is a community letter from Michael Fritz of Coralville. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 12th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Today, we start off, as usual, with the shorter other notices. From Cedar Rapids, Daniel Beyer, age 72, died Tuesday, January 10th. The Stuart Baxter Funeral Home and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids is in charge of those arrangements. Kimberly S. Or Kimberly K. Lestina, age 57, died Tuesday, January 10th, out of Coralville. The Jameson Schmitz Funeral Home of All Wine is in charge of those arrangements. From Tama, Darlene A. Blake, age 89, died Tuesday, January 10th. Assisting the family will be the Cruz Phillips Funeral Home of Tama, Toledo. From Toledo, Isla Jean Abby Bratton 
aged 91, of Altoona, formerly of Toledo, died Tuesday, January 10th. The Cruz Phillips Funeral Home of Tama, Toledo, was in charge of those arrangements. From Vinton, Robert Sandor, age 74, died January 7th. The Ray Beck Newhouse Funeral Home in Belle Plaine will assist the family. And George Albert Puraluski, age 70, of Davenport, died Thursday, January 5th. Assisting the family will be the Schmitz Growl Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Oshin. Turning now to the longer, more detailed funeral announcements, Carlos Boisen age 84, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully January 7th at the Methwick community in Cedar Rapids. In agreement with his wishes, Carlos has donated his remains to the University of Iowa for clinical research. A celebration of life will take place at 10 o'clock Friday morning, January 13th, at First Presbyterian Church in Marion and to be officiated by Methwick chaplain Christy Parker. In lieu of flowers, memorials in Carlos' memory may be made to First Presbyterian Church in Marion, of which held a special place in Carlos' heart. Sharon K. Bruner, age 78, of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 10th at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital. Visitation will be from 2 to 5 o'clock Sunday afternoon at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. The funeral service will be at 1 o'clock Monday, January 16th at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Interment will be in the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Daniel James Hempel, age 71, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on January 9th. Alice M. Osterhaus, age 77, of Cedar Rapids, passed on January 10th after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Joseph Leonard Richardson, age 89, of Cedar Rapids, died on Tuesday, January 10th at Stony Point Meadows Senior Living. A public visitation will be held from 1 to 2.30 Sunday afternoon at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home in Cedar Rapids. Graveside services with military rites will be held at St. Joseph Cemetery in the spring. Carol K. Rachel Bird of Iowa City passed away Tuesday, January 10th. A mass of Christian burial will be celebrated at 10 o'clock Monday morning at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Iowa City. Father Stephen Witt will officiate. Visitation will be Sunday from 2 to 4 at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City. Entombment will be at the Memory Gardens Mausoleum. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to St. Mary's Church, the Regina Foundation, or to DVIP. Conrad Vopel of Quaskerton passed away on January 9th, surrounded by his family. There will be a private burial at the Quaskerton Cemetery this week, followed by a celebration of his life with lunch provided from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday, January 28th at the AMVET Center in Quaskerton. The Rife Funeral Home in Independence is helping the family with the burial. James D. Avery, age 70, of Scotch Grove, Iowa, passed away Monday, January 9th at the University of Iowa Hospital following a short illness. Funeral services will be held at 11 o'clock Monday morning at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Monticello with internment in the Hopkinton Cemetery. Pastor Dave Ramish will officiate at the service. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the Animal Welfare Friends of Monticello. 
Bruce Clark of Iowa City, formerly of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 2nd at Crestview Care Facility in West Branch. Informal services will be held at 11 o'clock Saturday morning, January 14th, at the River Community Church at 3001 Muscatine Avenue in Iowa City. Ronald Wink, age 81, of Monticello, died Monday at the Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha following a brief illness. Funeral services will be held at 11 o'clock Thursday, January 12th, at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Monticello, with interment in the Oakwood Cemetery. Pastor Dave Ramish will officiate at the services. Friends may call from 5 until 7 p.m. Wednesday at the Getch Funeral Home in Monticello. Memorials may be made to the Oldorf Hospice Home. And we have a story written by Gage Miskaman of the Gazette, Iowa reports new COVID-19 cases. The Gazette, Iowa, on Wednesday, reported 2,201 new COVID-19 cases in the past week, a slight decrease from the cases reported the previous week. The actual total, though, is likely much higher given the availability of at-home test kits, the results of which are not reported to the state. In Lynn County, 147 new COVID-19 cases were reported this past week, down from the 181 reported the previous week. The county has recorded over 63,000 cases since March 2020, according to the Iowa Department of Public Health. Johnson County reported 150 cases last week, up from 133. The county has recorded over 44,000 cases since the start of the pandemic. To date, over 890,000 people have tested positive for COVID-19 in Iowa since the pandemic was first detected in the state in March of 2020. The state confirmed 45 deaths from COVID-19 in the past week, including three in Lynn County. That's the most in Iowa since 57 were reported for the week ending September 21st. The state reported 40 deaths last week. Since March of 2020, 10,508 Iowans have died from COVID-19. In Lynn County, the total is 654. In the past week, 222 people were hospitalized with COVID-19 in Iowa, which is down 19%. The number of COVID-19 patients in intensive care units increased from 17 to 23 in the past week, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Moving to the sports page, here's a story written by K.J. Pilcher of the Gazette. Add one more honor to Smith's already long list. Dateline Lisbon. Brad Smith has experienced almost everything as a wrestling coach and a competitor. He's won championships, led athletes to titles of their own, and claimed space in multiple halls of fame at the state and national level. Smith owns records and has become Iowa's most successful high school wrestling coach. In a little more than a month, the longtime Lisbon and Iowa City High head coach will add one more accolade to the list. Smith will lead the famed Grand March, uh, escorting the 336 medalists to be recognized by the crowd before the finals of the 2023 Traditional State Wrestling Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Smith is in his 45th season of coaching and said, It's a neat situation for me because I've been doing this for a long time. That is a really neat experience just to be able to lead those kids in that parade of champions. I'm looking forward to it. 
This serves as a cherry on top of a wrestling career that included two undefeated state title seasons as an Illinois prep and a junior Olympic championship. He won the 142-pound NCAA title for the University of Iowa and legendary coach Dan Gable back in 1976. Smith followed it with an unprecedented coaching career. Smith, who praised the support of his wife Connie and coached his sons, Jacob, Cody, and Colton at City High, says, I've worked hard at the sport and put a lot of time on it. It's great to be rewarded for it. All the time, effort, and kids I feel like I've helped make better people. The Iowa High School Athletic Association's Louis Curtis, who serves as an administrator to wrestling, called Smith three or four weeks ago with the news. IHSAA members scoured over past Grand March honorees. He noted they represented many facets of the sport, including wrestlers, administrators, IHSAA members, officials, media members, and even police officers. Lewis said not many were coaches, and Smith was a perfect fit. Curtis said, we looked at it, and the history of who had led the Grand March. We've had a wide variety, but not much in the way of coaches. He's very deserving. He was tickled to receive the call. Smith's coaching marks are unmatched, serving 24 seasons at Lisbon, over two stints, that bracket 21 years at City High. He's the all-time dual wins leader in Iowa history with 698, and has the chance to become the first to reach 700 dual wins during a Tri-Rivers Conference Triangular tonight with Alburnett and North Lynn. Smith also ranks first among all Iowa high school coaches with 19 total state team titles, including 12 traditional state tournament team championships. Lisbon won Class 1A traditional tournament crowns in 1980, 82, 83, 86, 88, 89, 90, 2017, and 2020, adding state dual titles in 87, 88, 91, 2017, and 2020. While at City High, Smith guided the Little Hawks to 3A team gold in 1992, 99, and 2022, sweeping both state tournaments in 99 and 2022. Smith has coached countless individuals in state championships, medalists, and qualifiers. Most notably, Smith has had a hand in coaching five of Iowa's 29 four-time state champions. He coached Lisbon's Scott Morningstar and City High's Jeff McGinnis to two of their four and led the Lions' Shane Light and his brothers Kale and Carter Happel each to championship seasons. Smith said, I learned a lot from Gable going through his program and being around him at camps. I learned how to handle kids and different ways to motivate them, which he was really good at. I felt I learned that straight from him and do that as a coach too. He added, you don't treat all your wrestlers the same. They're all individuals, so you have to make sure to do that well. The night could be even more special tonight if one of his wrestlers makes the finals. Lisbon's Brandon Paez is unbeaten and is a two-time state champion and three-time finalist. Heavyweight Wyatt Smith is also unbeaten and a returning state medalist. Tiernan Boots, a sophomore at 138, placed fifth last season. Smith said, Paez has been in a class of his own. Things are looking good for those three. I feel confident I've still got some work to do after the Grand March. Going back down to the Iowa Today page, we find a story written by Emily Anderson of the Gazette, One Dead in Marion Car Crash. Dateline, Marion. 
One person was killed in a crash Wednesday afternoon at the intersection of Highway 100 and East Post Road in Marion. The Marion Police and Fire Departments, as well as Area Ambulance, responded to the intersection at 2.16 p.m. A semi-tractor trailer had been heading west on Highway 100 when it struck a passenger car broadside that was turning east onto Highway 100 from the southbound turn lane of East Post Road. That's according to a news release from the Marion Police Department. The driver of the passenger car died at the scene. The driver of the semi, Zachary Sheming of Racine, Wisconsin, was cited for failure to obey a traffic control device. The name of the driver who died has not been released pending notification of family. Also from the Iowa Today page, a story written by Isabella Zaluska of the Gazette, new member appointed to Iowa City Council. Dateline, Iowa City. Andrew Dunn is joining the Iowa City Council as its newest member. The council unanimously appointed Dunn after a nomination process at a special meeting Tuesday. The 24-year-old Dunn then was sworn in and took a seat at the dais for the scheduled work session and formal meeting. 21 residents applied to fill that council vacancy. Council members then narrowed the panel of applicants to seven finalists. Each of the finalists were invited to give a 10-minute presentation at Tuesday's special meeting about why they were interested in the position. Council members then went through an informal nomination and voting process before taking a formal vote to select the new member. One year is left on the four-year at-large council term, which runs through next January 2nd. The council voted unanimously in November to fill the vacancy by appointment instead of holding a special election. Dunn succeeds Janice Weiner, who resigned after being elected a state senator to represent District 45. Dunn said he has spent the last decade working to improve his community. His interest in politics stems from his family's experience during the 2008 recession. Dunn's parents lost their jobs and their hope home when the recession hit. Dunn is a seventh-generation Iowan. He said he decided in 2012 he needed to get involved in politics because working families like his weren't being advocated for. Dunn recently ran in the Democratic primary to represent Iowa House District 90 but lost to Adam Zabner, who now holds that seat. Dunn said Tuesday, I've dedicated a lot of my time to advocating for working families like my own. I applied for this open Iowa City Council seat for the same reason I ran for State House in 2022, because the government should work for us. In his council application, Dunn said renters' issues and affordable housing are the top of his mind. He brought up how he would be the only renter on the council and could represent young professionals. Dunn said the community faces a multitude of challenges, including social and environmental, but the city's strategic plan is equipped to address those challenges. He brought up the city's plans to expand public transportation, making the commitment safer for pedestrians, and expanding opportunities for communities of color to advance economically. Dunn serves on the boards of the Iowa Farmers Union and Sustainable Iowa Land Trust. He works at a scientific manufacturing company and serves as a legislative aide for State Senator Claire Selsey of West Des Moines. 
working as a legislative aide, Dunn said, has given him experience with the budgeting process and would give the council a seat to some of the most critical issues affecting local government in the upcoming session. Dunn added that his experience with nonprofits and state government will allow him to, quote, hit the ground running on the council as budget discussions for fiscal 2024 continue. He also said he would like to work to establish a city youth advisory body that would empower students from diverse backgrounds and schools to be engaged in the political process at every level. And on the same page, we have a story written by Grace King of the Gazette, CR District Gets Threatening Letter. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. The Cedar Rapids Community School District last week received a threatening letter that, while not targeted at any specific Cedar Rapids locations, was promptly turned over to the police department. Cedar Rapids Police Department spokesperson Mike Badian said school resources officers, which are police in the schools, were made aware of the letters and are prepared and able to respond to any potential threat. He said, we take letters from and other malicious communications directed toward any part of the community very seriously. A spokesperson with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service said Tuesday, details about the threatening letters cannot be provided at this time to protect the integrity of our investigations. A spokeswoman for the Cedar Rapids Community School District directed questions from the Gazette about the letters to the Cedar Rapids Police Department. Badian suggested calling the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation for further information. DCI directed the Gazette to the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Letters also have been received by residents in the Cedar Falls Community School District. In a message to families last week, a district spokesperson said the letters include intimidating language toward public events, school buildings, and other locations across the country. Officials with the Cedar Falls Community School District reported they did not receive a copy of the letter and had not seen one, according to a message to families. District officials have been influenced by the informed, excuse me, by the local police department and that there is low risk. We have been motivating and notifying that a few letters have been delivered to random addresses in Cedar Falls, sites across the state of Iowa and other states, according to an email to families in the Cedar Falls schools. From the Hoopla page, we have a story about Rio Burritos moving. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. After seven months as a cloud kitchen in Rapid Foods, Rio Burritos is moving again. The restaurant announced plans January 5th to leave its current location at 4444 1st Avenue, Northeast. Its last day open there will be January 29th. Restaurant owner Phoebe Rios is in the process of securing a new location, which has so far not been specified. She hopes to announce a new location for the street-style Mexican concept soon. She said in a social media post, Please know our small family business thanks you for all your kindness, the support, and even the grace you have shown us when we have made mistakes. You are all appreciated. Rio Burritos started as a food truck. Rapid Foods was the first time it moved into a physical location after a long closure because of truck damage from the 2020 derecho. 
Rios opened her first brick-and-mortar restaurant in 2002 with Rios in Marion and later owned Salsa del Rio in downtown Cedar Rapids from 2010 to 2012. Rio Burritos opened out of a food truck from 2015 until 2020. Rio Burrito's departure from Rapid Foods follows a string of several others over the past year, including Tasty Crepes closure in December. After Rio Burrito's leaves, the only restaurant left will be Double Up Coffee. For opera fans, there is a story written by Diana Nolan of the Gazette about the Cedar Rapids opera returning. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. No one will be howling on stage during the school tour of Charlie and the Wolf, but the students in the audience may howl at the antics unfolding when jazz sax legend Charlie Parker meets Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in the 21st century. Cedar Rapids Opera commissioned the children's opera, premiering this week and traveling through at least six local elementary schools. Two public performances also are planned around the opera's company's Juneteenth celebrations this summer at the Iowa Children's Museum in Coralville and the Cedar Rapids Public Library. With music by four-time Grammy-nominated composer David Ragland Jr. and lyrics by Mary McCollum, both based in Nashville, the half-hour production not only serves as a portal to the world of opera, but uses music lessons to explore themes of diversity, equity, and inclusion that Parker and Mozart faced as child prodigies who eventually changed the face of music two centuries apart. The performers are members of Cedar Rapids Opera's Smith Young Artists Program, meaning they're still in college or just beginning their careers. Opera Company veterans Chad Sanka from the Voice Facility at Iowa State University is directing the show, and Gail Williams is serving as musical director and accompanying on host school's pianos. The show's creators were in Cedar Rapids this past week to see their show on its feet for the first time, which they both enjoyed. Raglan said Friday afternoon after seeing a previous rehearsal, I liked it a lot. I like how they brought it to life. Set in an elementary music classroom, the teacher, Miss Jones, who is played by Jay Dasha of Chicago, wants to pair Logan with another student who is alone, explaining that she wants every student to see a smiling face and feel welcome. But Logan balks because she has nothing to do in common with the classmate, so what would they ever talk about? Miss Jones continues, it's good to engage with others who aren't exactly like you. Citing the principles of rhythm, harmony, melody, and improvisation, she explains, We all have a voice that deserves to be heard. We are all different. We are all unique. There's something special in you and me. What's inside us should not divide us. Your voice and my voice together make harmony. Logan, who already has grumbled about why kids even have to school, have to go to school, isn't buying it. She says, before falling into a dreamland in a flash, music class gives me the blues. Audience will even get on on the action a time or two, with clapping and dancing. They'll also hear a variety of music styles, from classical and baroque to jazz and blues, with bits of dialogue connecting the thoughts. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 12th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. 
Thanks for listening. living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required, and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.